0: Uh, so, okay, well, are live. Uh, welcome, everyone, to the first episode of uh, my Silk Roads and Mountain Winds podcast, a podcast where we look at everything modern Asia. Um, I'm Imran. You can find me at Layboy97. Um, joining me today for my first podcast is my friend Rohan Javit Beg. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Rohan Beg. Am I correct?
1: Yes, that's correct. Hey, guys. Nice to meet you.
0: Um Rohan is a self-described conversational lubricant um, as based on his uh, Twitter bio. I wholeheartedly agree with that because um, I think, if I recall, the first time we met, we met at a restaurant in Subang, right?
1: Yeah, main place, Nonya
0: Chendol. Yes. And, um, yeah. you know, when you meet someone for lunch, you think, okay, we'll hang out for maybe an hour, two hours. Um, I think you were there for about five or six hours at we the end, left right?
1: At, we left at 4.30, yes. Met at, met at like 12.30, left at
0: 4.30. Yeah, something like that. It was like 11.00 to 4.00 or something like that. Yeah, yes. I, I just remember at the end, the, the staff were just looking at us like, this, yeah. please go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like,
1: I, there were a lot of side eyes, yes. Yes, yes.
0: Um, maybe just give a brief introduction to yourself to the listeners
1: okay uh, my name is Rohan Beg and pretty much all of my interest in politics history it's doesn't have a basis in academia or uh, professionalism I in fact work at a corporate consultation firm and I'm a freelance writer that's it everything else is a purely um, it's purely amateur interest (laughs)
0: Well, that's okay because that probably yeah. describes me too so yeah. <laughs> um okay so um i decided to entitle this podcast uh, a new malaysia question mark yeah. and yeah. this looks at the recent general election we had on may 9th yeah. um yeah. for those of you listening who might not be familiar um essentially on may ninth we had a historic moment for malaysia mm-hmm. um, A ruling coalition, which had been in power since our independence in 1957, was overthrown by a opposition coalition referred to as um, Pakatan Harapan, which I believe means coalition of hope. Yes. 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 Your Malay is probably better than mine, so Uh, (laughs) Um,
1: not not uh, not by a lot. I'm just saying that right now, not by a lot. (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um. What's weird is that this opposition was led by our former Prime Minister, Mahathir Mohamad, who is now back into power in his um, second stint as Prime Minister mm-hmm. at the age of 93, if I understand correctly, right? Yes,
1: he, yes, he is the oldest elected head of office ever. Wow. In, the, yeah, in the supreme irony that is Malaysian politics, the head of our first change in government in 61 years is the man who was once the godfather of that of that uh, party, mm. and he was a figure who was once the implacable enemy of our opposition, but he now rides into power at their head.
0: Yes, and in a net, yes. in just another weird twist that only makes sense in Malaysian yeah. politics, yeah. he yeah. allied himself yep. with his former enemy Anwar Ibrahim. Yes, yes, um, who was his former deputy prime minister and opposition leader. Um, yes, recently released from prison on, uh, I think, corruption and sodomy charges, which at the time was referred to as um, politically motivated. Yes, um,
1: the the sodomy charges were deemed to be very politically motivated. Mm-hmm. And he allied himself with Anwar, his alliance with Anwar Ibrahim, again, speaks to the dynastic politics in Malaysia, because during the first time he was charged with sodomy, he was actually the deputy prime minister to Mahathir Mohamad.
0: Yeah, he was... Um, yeah. Yeah, rising star, really, in the government he was
1: at the a, time. Yes, he was a rising star. And the reason both of them, were, the alliance was not easy, let's just say that right now. But the reason they decided to band together was because they thought Malaysia couldn't afford well, economically or politically um, another tenure of BN's government. The yes. kleptocracy and the corruption that was represented in the 1MDB scandal, most obviously, would have just brought the country down.
0: And for those of you not aware, BN refers to the incumbent government, uh, Barisan National, the National Front, which is um, essentially composed of race-based parties under then Prime Minister Mm -hmm. Najib Tun Razak, who is, Mm -hmm. I think he's the son of the second or third Prime Minister, if I understand correctly. Uh, The second, yes. 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 Tun Abdul Razak. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I guess if I had to describe this to non-Malaysian people, Listeners, um, imagine if, like, in American politics, if, let's say, Ronald Reagan uh, came back from retirement, (laughs) joined the Democratic Party, and then came back to power as a Democratic president. That's, like, basically the only way I can possibly describe this.
1: That is the closest way we can relate it to the American context. Although, uh, coming back to GE14, just to describe how historical it was. Now, the former ruling coalition, Barisan National, not only lost... They suffered a stunning defeat that surpassed everyone's expectations at oh. the hands of this opposing coalition. I mean, it can't be overstated just how much the balance of power was flipped overnight. Out of yes. the 13 states in our federation, BN now only controls two states: that's uh, Perlis and Baham. Yes. Now, Pakatan Harapan has attained a simple majority in parliament, and basically, besides two survey groups, Invoke and Ilham Centre. Nobody else predicted they would win. Mm-hmm. Even the most optimistic estimations basically said uh, BN would win, but they would win a further diminished majority in parliament.
0: I think if um, yeah. if I understand, Mahath- even Mahathir himself said he was surprised they won. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, that's true. As a matter of fact, that's actually led to some controversy because the Pakatan Harapan manifesto, and Mahathir in his trademark, like, a very sardonic way, basically, just said, "Oh, the reason we put so many outlandish provinces in the manifesto was because we didn't think we'd win." <laughs> yeah. So the manifesto was really more of a, uh, more like a public relations tactic,
0: really. So, um, getting back to the elections, um, yeah. after the elections, there was a lot of exciting talk about kind of a new, a new Malaysia, a Malaysia baru. In Malay, um, a, a liberal, inclusive Malaysia, and okay. which has moved past its kind of racialized politics. Um, whether that's true or not is what we intend to explore in this podcast for the next hour or so. Okay. So maybe let's discuss the first thing, which is this idea that is Malaysia past racial politics. And I want to uh, mention two things which challenge this view. Mm. Uh, the first is if you look at the Pakatan Harapan coalition, um, two parties. Uh, predominantly Malay and basically promote Malay interests. Um, the first is the Bersatu Party, which is led by Mahathir himself. Yep, which was um, a breakaway party from the, um, uh, um, um, Nomea, the, yes. the United Malay National Organization, which is the yep. main party which is dominated Malaysian politics yep. uh, since independence. Um, and it's essentially only open to Malay or Bumiputra membership. The very uh,
1: an accurate way to sum up what Bersatu is is the progressive AMNO that never was. They yes. consist of AMNO defectors, but mm. when they joined the Pakatan Harapan coalition, they didn't really portend to be more liberal or more progressive. They, yes. Their gripe was with Najib Tun Razak and the 1MDB scandal. Mm. They refused to be complicit in the cover-up and they left. As to their politics, well, they never really claimed to be more progressive.
0: Yes. Yeah. And the second Malay party is the Amana party, which mm. is uh, essentially a breakaway from the Islamic party in Malaysia, PAS. Yes. Um, I guess you could consider them like more, quote-unquote, progressive Islamists.
1: Well, this may seem strange to an international audience because the term uh, moderate seems to, have taken, um, it seems to have taken a hit mm. uh, predominantly in Western audiences, something meaningless. But in Malaysia, these terms do matter. Yes. So, Amana consists mostly of defectors from PAS. Yes. Yes, they didn't appreciate how uh, Hadi Abdullah Wang, he's the current leader of PAS, they didn't appreciate how he was cozying up to AMNO. Yes. So, they broke away, they formed their own party, and while they're not, um, they're not the, shall we say, uh, hardline, they still very much are colored by Islamist impulses, but ones that are quite amicable to, shall we say, conservative national sentiments in Malaysia.
0: Yes. And uh, let's, And I want to go to a second point, which is, um, this is based on statistics from the Medeca um, Center, which is, uh, mm-hmm. I think, a research firm based in Malaysia. Yep. Um, and based on an analysis of voting patterns, um, essentially only twenty-five to thirty percent of Malay votes actually went to Pakatan, um, which i, meant, have, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I'll—I'll—I'll I'll, I'll, I'll go through it and I'll let you uh, comment on this. And um, so, essentially, at least based on what they say, yep. uh, about seventy percent of Malay votes did not go to Pakatan, and that rather, the reason Pakatan won is because the vote was split between them, umno, hmm. um, and PAS. Yes. Now compare that to say, 95 um, percent of Chinese votes and about 70 to 75 percent of Indian votes going to Pakistan.
1: Yes.
2: Um,
0: do you think the two points I made somewhat challenges this notion that Malaysia is kind of in a post-racial epoch? I guess.
1: GE14 heralds a more progressive Malaysia, that really depends on who you're talking to. I mean, even though I consider myself an optimist, even I have to concede to the reality that GE14, while historical, was not a watershed moment in progressive politics. However, it does give us the opportunity to advocate for further social political progress more openly on more platforms than would have been previously possible. Mm. Now, we have to reckon with the fact that while BN has been ousted, the legacy it left behind in the form of six decades of ethnocentric rhetoric and Mm -hmm. political patronage remains intact. It's going to take a lot more than a single election to fix. Yes Now, in my opinion While we can gradually lend less and less credence to race-based politics We do- should also swallow this bitter pill mm. g 14 could not have been won without Mahathir and Bersatu yes. They represented a kind of balm to conservative Malay anxieties over a change of government like yes. They promised a return to the glory days of old UMNO when Mahathir was at its helm
0: This is and- um, doing the kind of period of rapid economic growth during the 80s and 90s, right? The first Mahati era, I guess.
1: Yes, that was it. Now, it's also important to note that this wasn't just uh, the glory days for Malays, but this was the glory days of Malaysia. This, this was when Malaysia Boleh meant something substantial. Yes. But that wasn't a time of race-neutral politics, to put it politely. Hmm. I've looked over those statistics as well, Yes. Um, it said only twenty-five to thirty percent of Malay voters cast their votes for Pakatan Harapan. Yes. The rest was split between BN and PAS. Now, that's a pretty sobering fact that should caution us against pushing certain reforms overzealously. Yes. It was ide—it wasn't ideology, but bread and butter that tipped the scales against BN. Rising costs of living. Yeah. Yeah. Who said that. Yes. Recognizing that our government may not even have an incentive to pursue more liberal or progressive reforms is all the more reason they should be more loudly vouched for.
2: Mm.
1: My greatest fear is that we misjudge just how much of the benefit of the doubt our new government deserves in unraveling BN's legacy to the point that we don't see they are, in fact, simply continuing its legacy. Yes. They figure, okay, uh, Najib was the problem 1MDB was the problem, now that they're gone the system can run its course no, to me Najib was the symptom of a much deeper problem, the symptom that made him inevitable, is Mm -hmm. what we need to focus on dismantling yes so one of the ways I think we can ensure that doesn't happen is to raise the quality of discourse
2: Mm.
1: Mm. so now this uh, brings me to the issue of course and free speech in Malaysia
0: yeah I think that was the second point I wanted to bring up um, yeah we've seen um, the government uh, moving in positive steps in that direction they've uh, they've they're trying to limit the amount of um, political s- stakes in media companies that political parties can have they have they've recently abolished the sedition law um, and certainly if you read Malaysian media since the election there's certainly kind of a re-energ- re-energization of discourse
1: yes very much so these are victories we can take them as straight-up victories there are no downsides to that yes however there is a certain obstacle that i think most people didn't see in the way after 61 years of having the government kind of shall we say um restrict our freedom of speech we have forgotten how to have a proper conversation on certain hot-button topics that they wouldn't allow us to talk about before. Yes. Like, while free speech isn't exactly suppressed in Malaysia as it is in Saudi Arabia, for example, mm. you can still get locked up for slandering Islam, yes. royal royalty, or even our Prime Minister. Now, these measures have had a hideous effect on the way we have these conversations. Yes. Like, for the longest time, political discourse in Malaysia has been overridden by a racial paradigm. Yeah. Almost everything that's debated on a national level is framed in the boundaries of a power-sharing context between the races, as in, oh, Chinese want more freedom of speech? Well, Malays, we have our rights, and we deserve Sharia law as well. Mm. So it makes it seem like Malaysia is less a national identity and more a contractual stipulation that holds only as long as ultra-conservative sensitivities do. Yes. Yeah. Greater freedom of speech is great, mm-hmm. but it's redundant to me when the quality of the discourse is still low. Yes. So I think while advocacy groups can get a lot of things done via engagement with the grassroots, mm-hmm. it needs to be aided by a government that breaks free of the standard conventions Yes. and dares to openly advocate for a more liberal and progressive line in parliament, strategically, of course.
0: Yeah, this is um, something that I've, it's a bit hard for me to explain to non-Malaysians is that, you're right, Um, we, we you know, yeah. we're not Saudi Arabia in the sense that, yeah. you know, yeah. that there's no public discourse. It's actually quite an active and lively public discourse. Yes, there is. But we kind of have to toe this line, like kind of look over, look over our back all the time with what we say. Um, yes. So it's kind of like, we're kind of in this weird kind of gray zone when it comes to how we discuss very sensitive issues here. Um, yeah. but do you think it's also like beyond this, uh, uh like political kind of state controlled discourse, do you think there's also a cultural aspect in the sense that, um, in Malaysian culture and especially Malay culture is very much based on this idea of um, saving face and not, uh, kind of, not kind of rocking the boat. Do you think that also affects how we discuss things?
1: Uh yeah, that would lead us uh, that leads me to another point about elitism in Malaysian politics. Mm. but before I get to that, now, i just like to inform everyone that um in the Malaysian context, there is almost no political leftism in the government
0: no, we We don't have the same yeah. kind of left or right divide that you' seen you see in like the yes. West, I
1: suppose. yeah, yes. over what would classify as leftism in Malaysia? would probably be perceived as moderate conservatism, let's say, in the US, for example. Yes. Okay, today, I mean, in Parliament, liberalism is perceived as a kind of gateway sin that would ultimately lead to the erosion of Malay rights. Yes. So if you want to push a leftist line, it would have to be couched in the rhetoric of moderate conservatism. And I think it's important we do this because if you're just going to play the safe game, if you're just going to toe the conservative line, then AMNO or mm. PASS can always outmaneuver you there. Yes, and the re- and after six decades of just manoeuvring in that line of politics, it's created a top-down effect, uh, as you say. There's na- it's now it's had a cultural effect where yeah. where race, religion, and royalty are hot-button topics that you just don't approach for fear of incarceration. Mm. And so it's kind of atrophied. A lot of um, our ability to have an open and productive conversation about it, without it descending into a circle jerk of false equivalencies. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think um, it's there's a very kind of um, the way Malaysians talk about politics is that we don't kind of directly um, approach the topic. We kind of circle around it. If that makes sense. We
1: uh, vagaries. We, yeah, that's the word. Yeah, vagaries we speak in a very
0: kind of indirect way. Mm. Um, which is interesting, but it means that it's change in Malaysia is very frustratingly slow because uh, we kind of always circle around the, the topic at hand.
1: Yes. Um, there are certain friends of mine, I would say they're kind of libertarian-minded, and they thought that if the Sedition Act was just abolished and if the government got off our backs and allowed us more leeway to have these conversations, mm. that everything would be ideal. But to that, I would disagree because 61 years of having an overbearing government means it does have an effect on how society converses about these things. Yes. You couldn't have these kind of conversations without um, being held up on suspicion of, quote, disrupting national harmony, end quote. That's to say nothing of our education system, where a very state-sanctioned, uh, line of education on history and politics was mm-hmm. the only thing that was allowed. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: So. And um, as I understand correctly, you've told me you you've you you're kind of a freelance writer. You've written on politics for certain media outlets here. Um, mm-hmm. Did you ever feel that when you whenever you were speaking about politics that you yourself kind of had to self censor, or
1: being a freelance writer? Mm. Yeah, there were a certain things we. Uh, we had to censor ourselves with. Yes. Uh, But there were certain outlets that allowed me to express myself, but Mm. again, only in certain terms. So as I said, we could only engage in these topics in vagaries. Yes. It's led to this interesting thing whereby you could find more enlightened discussions on social media, as paradoxical as that sounds. Yes. Because there's not really a lot of censorship going on there. Hmm. So I think, um, yeah, we are allowed to have only a certain leeway in terms of discussion. Yes. And we're, we're allowed to have it within a certain framed context. Mm. We're not allowed to say anything off the cuff, for example.
0: Yeah, we, we, can, only, we can discuss controversial topics but only within um, yeah. the context of a certain language, which is, yeah. um, which is acceptable.
1: Yeah. For example, if you wanted to discuss race, you would always have to end with the very boring, racism is bad. Yes. (laughs) That's it. Like, oh, we don't want the Malays to discriminate against us, and we won't discriminate against the Malays. I mean, we don't really touch on the topics of institutional racism. God forbid we discuss Article 153 in our federal constitution that um, enshrines uh, Bumiputra privilege. Mm. Yes that uh, we're not really permitted to talk about it unless you have like a really understanding editor. No?
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um so let's move on to um cuz you've touched on this this now um elitism in Malaysia.
1: Okay, yes. Uh,
0: now, um so if you look at the modern, look at the current government, um all the focus on Mahate on Anwar Ibrahim, mm-hmm. um the fact that many of Mahathir's old guard and the you know uh, mm-hmm. previous people in Mahatis um, yeah. government are essentially back in power yeah. so that could that possibly says that Malaysian politics for all of our mm-hmm. you know um, aspirations for liberalism and, uh, yeah. and modern Malaysia is yeah. still very much um, controlled by elites I guess people with yeah. the with enough wealth and or political or family connections um, yes but, but let me just uh, bring up two. let me just give two quotes challenges uh, so this is from the Free Malaysia Today. Yep. This was written in, I think, August, um, when yep. um, our previous Prime Minister w- was first arrested on corruption and abuse of power charges. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'll read it here. Quote, But beyond the headlines, something more profound could be in the offing. The beginning of the end of a feudal culture that allowed the high and mighty to act with impunity. The arrest mm-hmm. quite possibly incarceration of a former Prime Minister, scion of a powerful family, has sent shockwaves throughout the country, especially in the rural heartland. Second quote, I'll read this from Malay Mail. This was written in October. Mm -hmm. Um, If there is an explanation for the dramatic success of the opposition at GE14, it lies there. Mm -hmm. In its success in taking on the state commanded by Najib's UMNO BN, not by explicit frontal political assault, but via the encircling and ultimately choking activity of civil society, communication, sociability and organizations. So do you think that Malaysia, do you think we're still in this kind of feudalistic, elite-driven system? Or do you think that we're not, giving, we're not paying enough homage to civil society in Malaysia?
1: I think civil society in Malaysia has done an excellent job of mm. chipping away at this culture of elitism. But first, I'd like to clarify by saying I, wouldn't refer, I would refer to elitism in the Malaysian context as feudalism straight up. Yes. Now, if you'd like an obvious example of that, look no further than Najib's recent interview with Mary and Jolie. Now... This is the Al Al Jazeera interview, yes? Yes, Yes. Al Jazeera 101 East. Yes. Or rather, look at the reactions to that interview. Now, he couldn't give a single satisfying answer to any question she asked, Mm -hmm. and he had a childish tantrum in the middle of the interview. And yet, despite being such a clear train wreck, there were some who praised him for standing his ground against yes. undue aggression. Now, mind you, many of those who sympathized weren't even people who likely voted for his party.
3: Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Many,
1: yeah, many of us are so accustomed to this feudal deference to leadership yes. that the sight of them being held publicly accountable is so unfamiliar. It feels like an attack. Yes, There's this assumption that elected leaders have to be treated with a kind of decorum, as if they were, yes, royalty. Mm. This was most prevalent in AMNO. This is the lead party of Barisan National. It's a father-knows-best kind of power dynamic. It yes. places a premium on the politics of pedigree and patronage. Yes. Now, court politics does not a healthy democracy make. Mm. Now, another example would, of course, be the PD move.
0: Uh, for those of you who don't know, there was a by-election in Port Dixon, um, in which uh, Anwar Ibrahim won a parliamentary seat, as I understand. In a by-election, right?
1: Yes, it was a by-election. Now, there was a lot of controversy surrounding that by-election because many said even though he legally needed to win a seat in parliament to qualify as the so-called PM in waiting, yes, it was, that it was an unnecessary measure so early mm. after GE14. So now there's a lot of polarization as to whether the PD move constituted an act of feudalism or was simply a necessary strategic move to legally pave the way for Anwar Ibrahim to be PM. Yes. Now, in my opinion, would something like this have needed to happen? Yes, it was inevitable. Pakhtan mm. Bak- Arapan campaigned with the idea that Anwar Ibrahim would eventually be Prime Minister. So on that note, to be fair, uh, we can't plead ignorance here. Yes. They openly campaigned with it, and we voted for them. Now, however, while the act itself may not have been thoroughly feudal, how Anwar comported himself seemed to be. Yes. He had this utter lack of interest in conceding, in my opinion, even an inch to the fact that his power plays were not in good faith with the ideals we think a new Malaysia should aspire to. Yes. Now, it, it's the kind of entitlement to power that stunts our democracy, and worse, it places a significance on personality over policy. Yes. Now, the fact that there was a lot of opposition to the PD move, actually a lot more than I anticipated, um, it actually shows that, yes, we are aware of the feudalism in our political culture, and we are indeed working hard to try and repeal it. Yes. Yes. uh, uh, That's what I think. I think after GE14, we see feudalism for what it is, and we're trying to move away from it. Hmm. we're trying to see our leaders first and foremost as they should be civil servants
0: yeah and um whenever we discuss elitism and feudalism in malaysian politics it's yep. a lot of um scholars of the larger Southeast asian region have pointed out that this is something that's very concurrent in the area um so um Southeast asian scholar michael Vatikiotis, who wrote an excellent book called um and Silk," not i think you read it too um He pointed out that Saudi's Asian politics is very much driven by powerful individuals. Mm
2: -hmm. So rather than
0: power being diffused um, in a quote-unquote modern democratic system, um, power being diffused across, say, political parties or institutions, it's very much concentrated in the hands of a few certain people. And um, what I find interesting is that contrary to this kind of Western notion of Asian culture being very collectivist, it's actually a very weirdly really hyper individualist system. It it's, is uh, a, yeah. It
1: is a very hyper individualist system, but again not in the Western context. Yes. It's more it's more like a clan based system. Mm. Yes. But yeah. Um it's a uh, a system of court politics mm. wherein if a certain block has attained um has accrued power and pedigree, they mm. can pose a challenge to the incumbent. Yes. They can pose a challenge to the incumbent and use democracy as a vehicle to oust them. Yes. But that in and of itself, of course, is not an exercise of democracy. That's court politics. Yes.
0: Yes. Um, I mean, I guess you could argue that if this is not necessarily purely a Malaysian or Southeast Asian thing. I mean, if you look at America, for example, um, family dynasties has always been there, right? The Clintons, the Bush families. Um, yes. So, I mean, one could argue that this is just something that will inevitably happen in any democratic system. There will be powerful families that will dominate. One could argue that. However, here's the difference.
1: In the Southeast Asian context, there is indeed some kind of sentiment in which elected leaders with pedigree, mm-hmm. for example, Najib Tun Razak is the son of Tun Abdul Razak, yes. in which pedigree is venerated. Yes. I think in the United States... Pedigree is not venerated. It's treated with suspicion. Mm. It's treated with a lot of suspicion. And personally, I think that's something we should co-opt. Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah, I think um, certainly we we kind of we were too much in awe of um, our leaders. Um, I remember even just after the election, people were pointing out like, you know, we are allowed to criticize Mahathir. He's not infallible, you know. Yes. So, <laughs> Um, this is something that affects not just um, supporters of BN but also uh, supporters of the current Pakistan government. It's that we 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 pay too much homage to our leaders, I guess. Um,
1: just a veneration for them.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, do you think that because um, we've mentioned the power of civil society in Malaysia, um, mm-hmm. and certainly. It seems to me that compared to most other countries in Southeast Asia, um, we have a fairly strong civil society here. Um, yes. We have a relatively empowered civil society. Yes. Um, do you want? I mean, do you want to comment on that? Or?
1: Oh, okay. Now, regarding our civil society, I think they could be in lieu of uh, state government initiatives to, for mm. example, to, for example, uh, protect the vulnerable minorities. Yes. Civil society fills that vacuum and they have been even before GE14. Yes. However, now I do think there is uh, there is a need for the state to get involved with them. Civil society alone can't just engage the grassroots by themselves. Yes. I think the state needs to lend a helping hand there as well, more so than it's been doing and more publicly.
0: Could you give an example maybe of where they could possibly collaborate?
1: Uh, I, no real examples come but I, I was thinking, for example, in terms of uh, for example the refugees uh, refugee schools Yes now, as I understand it, you worked in a refugee school once, yes
0: yeah, I was uh, interning there. okay,
1: civil society does the bulk of the heavy lifting when it comes to refugees because Malaysia has uh, refused to ratify um, what treaty was it again? Sorry, it escapes me.
0: I, I really can't remember the top of my head.
1: <laughs> okay, anyway, so the Civil Society was the one that's doing the bulk of the heavy lifting in terms of their education, yes. employment, and um, business opportunities. Yes. Now, it's, quite a, it's kind of a precarious line they walk because mm. technically, there is almost nothing distinguishing a refugee without a UNHCR card. Mm-hmm. from an illegal immigrant. Yes. Yes. So I think, rather than existing in that grey area, I think the state should work with with civil society groups mm-hmm. by ratifying the necessary legislation yes. that, would, that would make the initiatives a lot smoother.
0: I think there was a recent um push to allow refugee children to attend public schooling am I correct or
1: Yes that yes that was the one example that escaped my mind yes stateless children will now have access to national schools mm. Yes that is the kind of example I was talk- I was thinking about
0: And what I find interesting is that um if you look prior to the election there was a lot of um um collaboration between the opposition parties and civil societies and many certainly many um leaders of civil groups were in the opposition uh, movement um now with the pakatan in power we see these um these these figures who are big big names in the civil society now in the institutional power mm-hmm. so certainly if i was in civil society in malaysia i would be quite excited because now they actually have a larger platform to enact change i
1: uh, i have mixed feelings about that actually because mm-hmm. Um, the Reformasi era, uh, for those who don't know, Reformasi was the movement that began after Anwar Ibrahim was incarcerated. Yes. Yes, he is the de facto face of Reformasi.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, a lot of the civil society leaders and key figures from the Reformasi era who collaborated with Pakatan Harapan are now within the PKR machinery. Yes. Now the problem with that is as long as if they stick true to their ideals that's fantastic mm-hmm. but they may also be absorbed into the factional infighting within PKR. Yes. Yes, because many of them see themselves as very pro-umno I uh, sorry sorry pro Anwar.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And the rest uh see themselves as loyal to their own principles. Yes. Yes. So Mm, the induction of civil society into politics is something that I greet with a certain kind of reticence
0: yes i think, I, I mean I think certainly people have to realize that being yeah. a pol- being a politician versus being an activist are two different things
1: yes, very much so if you are a if you are a stern idealist, mm-hmm. then I think you would be of much better service to Malaysian society if you remained a part of an activist group outside of government yes yeah, I think the government should be should um, uh, grant you more leeway to communicate with them yes. to ensure that whatever objectives that you'd like to achieve do get achieved. But I think activist groups actively cooperating uh, with politicians in their office, mm-hmm. I don't think that's a good idea.
0: Hmm. Well, I think ultimately all we can say is time will tell. So. Yeah, time will tell.
1: Uh, it's actually it's actually odd because we are having all these discussions. It hasn't even been one year since g 14
0: No, it's been what Only five six months? months? Five six months? Yeah.
1: Yeah, five six months. Yeah, but things are moving at a really fast pace. So mm. it's good that we're having these conversations to prepare ourselves for what's coming in the future.
0: Yes. Mm. Now I want to look at Malaysian the recent election in a regional sense. Mm. Um, so the external effects that this could have. So let's first look at um Southeast Asia, um. Now, the, re- the recent Malaysian election has kind of pulled Southeast Asia in kind of simultaneous directions, both a mm-hmm. democratic direction and a authoritarian direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, those of you who are interested in the region would probably recall there was a recent election in Cambodia on July mm-hmm. 29th, where yep. um, the incumbent government under, I think, Prime Minister Hun Sen um, yep. was returned to power, which is probably not difficult considering the fact that he banned the opposition. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um and we have we, we have upcoming elections in Indonesia and Thailand I think next year and mm-hmm. I think possibly Singapore in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So if you look at ASEAN now we, we it's a very weird mix of um different political systems, right? We have uh mm-hmm. democracies like the Philippines, Malaysia, Myanmar. We have one-party states like Vietnam and Laos and we have a military yep. junta in Thailand. Yep. So do you think that the recent election could have an effect in, in Southeast Asia in a positive direction in terms of like uh, a more democratic direction.
1: Uh, in my opinion, I think that's going to have a very limited effect. Uh, mm-hmm. Ali Salman, as the head of the Institute of the for Democracy and Economic Affairs, yes, he said something quite prescient. Yes, he said I don't see any direct impact that the elections in Malaysia would have on the politics in other countries in the region mm-hmm. as all ASEAN countries are following their own unique historical patterns of democratic development. Yes. Now, I think he was spot on. I think GE14 could serve as an inspiration to activists and uh, foreign civil society groups, but there is very little to make me think that it would cause some kind of domino effect because our neighbors are subjected to their own political dynamics That may not be congruous to ours. Okay, for example, uh, the PAP in Singapore. Yes. Now, I don't think GE14 might cause a similar rejection to their tenure in Singapore. Mm. Because as I understand it, there is no widespread anger at the PAP for kleptocracy and ineffectual government.
0: I mean, certainly the PAP has always been seen as more efficient in governance compared to... um Yes. The national.
1: yes. And also the PAP has never had a one MDB scandal. Now, yes. Their reputation for pragmatic efficiency and meritocracy has kept corruption at bay. Yes. Now, living standards may of course be sky high in Singapore, mm-hmm. but the wage but the wages are fairly high as well. Mm-hmm. So corruption and living standards, those were actually the two key factors, the the two determinant factors in G fourteen. And the PAP has a Um, it has a tap on both of them yes so i don't think the necessary circumstances align to trigger something comparable to g14 in singapore
0: yeah and i think also you have to you have to remember the fact that in singapore um civil society in the opposition to me at least seems fairly uh uh tamed
1: yeah it's very Uh, nascent
0: yeah yeah compared to say malaysia where um it certainly seems more energetic i suppose
1: it's true that's also uh, this is the love-hate relationship i have with singapore uh for one their efficiency is second to none mm-hmm. their focus on meritocracy is something i dearly hope we can co-opt yes but they are also as one article put it the world's least hated authoritarian state
0: <laughs> i yeah. think uh my favorite description of singapore i ever read was um uh what was it it was a uh, semi-fashion Air con- air conditioned neo-fascist like shopping mall or something like that.
1: <laughs> uh, that's pretty much it. It's a neo-fascist uh, shopping mall. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I remember there was this one anecdote you shared with me. Uh, if Singapore is Sparta, uh, hello.
0: Yeah. Hi. Sorry. Oh, sorry.
1: Sorry. If Singapore is Sparta, uh, Hong Kong is Athens. Yes. Malaysia would be Thebes. In that. <laughs> We really don't get the press that the other two do.
3: <laughs>
0: mm, yes, yeah. yeah. Which is interesting because yeah. Malaysia and Singapore culturally were almost the same, right? Well, we used to be one country, effectively.
1: One country. Yes. Uh, I like to refer to Singapore as the New York that was a, that that was expelled. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, but do you think that Singapore is in many ways an in inverse of Malaysia in the sense that in Malaysia, um. It's, it's a majority Malay with Malay political dominance, um, while in Singapore, it seems the opposite. It's a Chinese majority and with the Chinese and political dominance, and the Malays in, I guess, kind of a secondary position.
1: I would say that's true. The inverse is true, but it's also quite superficial because the Malay-Muslim hegemony that exists in Malaysia has a lot of factors that Singapore does not. Mm-hmm. For example, we have to deal with Islamism, Yes. And we have to deal with uh, the royalty of our federation. Yes. you was renowned for spearheading a system of government that was technocratic Mm -hmm. and and meritocratic. Yes. So I think whatever institutional racism that Singapore has to counter. Yes. It's not comparable to ours. Mm. Yeah. I think that their civil society were a bit more energized. Could yeah. take on could take on those challenges. Mm. Okay, uh, Singaporeans, are civil society groups, mm-hmm. they would have, if they were more energized, would have a much easier time dismantling the institutionalized racism that does exist in Singapore mm-hmm. than we would have, for example. Yeah. Because in Singapore, religion isn't really a factor, nor is royalty.
0: Yes. Yes. Um, what I find interesting is that now that Mahathir back in power, um, you could look at him as like kind of the last of his generation of Southeast asian leaders, right? Like during his first stint as Prime Minister, there was Mahathir in Malaysia, there was Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, there was um, Suharto in Indonesia, Marcos in the Philippines. Um, mm-hmm. He outlived them all, right? He's like yeah, the he last has- of that generation of leaders. Yeah,
1: that, that's a lesson for us. I don't think we should really mess with Mahathir. <laughs> Yes, he is the last generation of leaders, but um, I think Mahathir and Lee Kuan Yew stood out from, say, Marcos and Suharto because while Mahathir and Lee Kuan Yew were indeed autocrats, Mm -hmm. they were not kleptocrats.
0: I mean, Malaysia never experienced the same kind of corruption that, say, Suharto did or that Marcos, Mm -hmm. the Philippines and the Marcos did.
1: No, not at all. And Neither Mahathir or Lee Kuan Yew were dictators. No. like They had to answer to certain, uh, to certain political interests. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, elections were a viable route for change in Malaysia and Singapore. Yes. Yes. And I think Mahathir himself realizes that the age of the strongman is at an end.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: for example, one of the earliest reforms he did when he became prime minister... Was to defang the prime minister's office, mm-hmm. so I think yeah, I think it's a kind of mere culpa on his end.
0: Yeah, I see. Yeah. Um. Now let's look at say Malaysia's foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Um. Now Malaysia's foreign policy historically, I feel, has been yeah. relatively. I guess the best description would be non-aligned. We try to get along with everyone. Um. I think we kind of recognize our. Yeah. Um, inherent weakness compared to say our larger neighbors
2: Um,
0: for instance but let's say there's been some shifts so let's look at our relations with China for example Um, so prior to the election and this was a big concern in public discourse was the increasing encroachment of uh, mainland China into Malaysian politics and the economy Um, especially with regards to um, these kind of huge infrastructure projects which were extremely expensive and Many Malaysians questioned how, like, what benefits we would get out of it. Mm. Now, if you look uh, at the recent government, uh, we've yep. uh, at least suspended many of these um, kind of big-ticket projects with Chinese state-backed companies. Yep. Uh, there was a recent um, incident where we um, we released a couple of uh, OIGO prisoners and yes. let them go to Turkey, which I'm yep. sure upset Beijing. Yep. Do you think there's been a kind of a uh, A shift in how we in our relations with with China, like do you think Malaysia is moving in a more kind of pro US direction, or do you think we're going to kind of still maintain our non aligned kind of mentality?
1: I think the term you used was uh, you hit the nail on the head non aligned. That's Mm -hmm. pretty much defined our very diplomatic approach to almost every country, especially the two superpowers we find ourselves in between China and Mm -hmm. the United States. Yes, now as to whether it's sick hold on aside from singapore china is our largest trading partner yes bilateral trade between us is expected to exceed some 100 billion dollars in 2018 yes now couple that with the fact that our brand of diplomacy has always involved a non-confrontational stance Mm -hmm. and i don't think Mahathir's more assertive tone signifies any kind of fundamental change in our relationship yes Simply means China shouldn't expect the easy approval for its investments in Malaysia as it did under Najib's tenure. Yes. I mean, even on the campaign prior to GE14, Mahathir had uh, he had talked up the spectre of Chinese encroachment onto Malaysia's sovereignty. Mm-hmm. But when he went to Beijing, the reasons for his cancellation of China's projects were conveyed in very simple terms. He simply said, "We can't afford it." Yeah. It wasn't tinged with Sinophobic provocation, and Beijing, for its part, accepted the explanation. Yes. Now, in terms of security, in particular the South China Sea dispute, there's really no reason to think we're going to abandon our trademark approach of non-aligned diplomacy between China and the US because almost every other approach ends badly for us. Yes. Yes. And I think
0: uh, certainly, I mean, like militarily, just purely militarily, we're not as strong as, say, um, Vietnam or the Philippines, which has, or Indonesia, uh, which has more experience with kind of a um, uh, strong military, I guess. Yes, exactly.
1: We are much more experienced in terms of uh, diplomatic strategy. For yes. example, Mahathir's uh, statement that there should be no warships in the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. That was that was a very cleverly worded statement, despite its simplicity, because it allowed Beijing to save face,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: it and it allowed the United States to claim that they couldn't take a stronger hand in the South China Sea because well, the neighborhood, Southeast Asia, spe- especially Malaysia, is against it. Yes, yes. So I think that's the role we should embrace right now.
0: I think economically it makes sense because Malaysia is a very export-oriented country. Um, we depend a lot on exports to, to, for our standard of living, of our development. So yes, it, it's in our interest to ensure there's no conflict in the South China Sea, for example.
1: Yes, that's very true. As a matter of fact, uh, recently Mahathir went to the UN General Assembly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now everyone was well. It was kind of a very patriotic moment for a lot of people I know. Mm-hmm. They said Mahathir was striking. He was bringing back a certain dignified kind of statesmanship that Malaysia hasn't been known for for a while. Yes. Now, in my opinion, that speech he made was very classic Mahathir. Mm. He's the post-colonial elder statesman who is perpetually suspicious of the US and NATO-led liberal world order. But mm. at the same time, he is not a Trumpian nationalist. He understands yes. that we need engagement with the world to thrive. Yes. There ha- even at his worst, Mahathir has never said anything close to the lines of, uh, let's uh, mal- make Malaysia great again, Malaysia <laughs> first, and just close off all our borders. No, yes. because that would lead to our demise instantly. Yes.
0: And certainly, if you look at the history of Malaysia, um, yeah. we our history is very much defined by our connections with the with the with the outer world i guess we are you know we we used to be a trading counterpart, we still are a trading counterpart in many ways um our demographics is affected by our by connections to other countries you know uh, the the influx of indians and chinese during the late 19th century um the islam came through trading connections with yeah. india and the middle east you uh, know we yeah. We've always it, been, in many ways, an open society, at least historically.
1: Yes, it's something that's very at odds with the uh, right-wing Malay Muslim nationalism or mm-hmm. the line they toe, which basically says Malaysia for Malays. I mean, yes. in the first place, there's very little one can agree with on what constitutes a Malay.
0: Yes, Malaysia. The word Malay is in a very kind of a nebulous term. I feel um, scholars still can't exactly pin down what is a Malay. And what yeah. I find interesting is that this notion that Mal- the Malays were the original people of um, Malaysia, that's not entirely true. Because if you look at many Malays, their yeah, ancestry might come from, say, Java, um, mm-hmm. from uh, like my father's boogies, right? From Sulawesi, from the Middle East. I know some Malays who have Yemeni as ancestry. Um, I believe you yourself said you have um, Pakistani ancestry. So yeah, uh- even the Mal- what constitutes Malay is a very nebulous term and many, and also, is you know based on our kind of um, I think what
1: consti- the constitutional definition of a Malay mm. was crafted out of political necessity. Yes, it's not really an accurate description of what a Malay is, mm. it was more to balance the post independence, the post independence power dynamics quickly. Yes. Mm. So, I think that, that as you said, we've always been a maritime nation in which migration of peoples was kind of like an accepted part of life yes i mean there were no hard borders that you would associate for example in europe in southeast asia yeah if uh, certain people say from java were trying to find greener pastures elsewhere they would just pack up on their ship and they would move let's just say to malaya yes and that would be that they would settle down they would have their family and that's it they would just plead, uh, sorry, pledge fealty to the king, and that would be yes. that.
0: Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly compared to say countries like say Japan or most of Western Europe, which only yep. very recently saw an influx of um, kind of migration, yep, is still kind of dealing with. Malaysia historically, we've always experienced this this kind of influx of outsiders into our borders, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's kind of affected how we the modern Malaysian identity in the sense that. You know, we always like to express how multicultural we are. Um, And I mean, to the point where it almost gets a bit kind of um, uh, dull, I guess. You know, it's like almost a a Uh, tourist talking point. It is true. It's it's
1: insincere. The the way it's been bandied about, especially when it comes from the state, Mm -hmm. is very insincere. It's more Mm -hmm. like celebrate Malaysian culturalism by not ever violating the status quo. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But, yes, it's true. We like to celebrate our multiculturalism, but it's odd for me because that multiculturalism seems to extend from Malay to Chinese to Indians. Mm. It's a very peninsular way of thinking. Yes. After all, because Malaysia, as you said, people have been moving to and from here for centuries, there's no reason to think this demographic is going to hold. Not, and that's to say nothing of the demographics in East Malaysia, for example, where the migration of people, is, particularly in Sabah, um, hasn't changed up to this day.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: For example, Sulus from the Philippines, Dayaks, and Ibans, they just cross the border from Indonesian Borneo to Sabah all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think Malaysian multiculturalism needs to be, we need to find a better definition for what it means. Yes. Yes. Um, one that's much more um, faithful to the principles of what multiculturalism is and not to this uh, picturesque image of a Malay, Chinese, and Indian just smiling, being happy together. Yeah,
0: because <laughs> yeah, I think that, that, that image that yeah. we push in our tour is that it also kind yeah. of it ignores the fact that even within, like, say, the Indian community or the Chinese yeah. community, there's so many yeah. divisions and different groups within that.
1: Yes, that's true, yeah.
0: Do you think that um, our multi-ethnic character is probably why Malaysia we've kind of, I mean, we, I guess you could describe it as kind of a semi authoritarian government for a long time, but it, it's also why we've never become a full-blown authoritarian government, because um, um, there's a common scholarly consensus that instituting um, authoritarian governments is easier in like ethnically homogenous states. While in places like Malaysia or India, for example, because it's so diverse, it's it's a lot harder. Do you think that's a fair assessment to make? Or, I think that's a
1: fair assessment to make. Mm. But it wasn't just due to multicultural diversity; mm. it was also due more or less to our monarchy. I see. Yeah, that the twelve states in Malaysia,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and I think about like eleven of them have nine. a monarch. Sorry, sorry, nine. Yes have been very sorry, they have been very staunch in maintaining their respective monarchies. Mm-hmm. It's why we're not a republic. Yes and we're it's a
0: federal system, right?
1: Yeah we're a federal system. Mm-hmm. And it's also why the imposition of a dictatorship or a full blown authoritarian government would not work. Yes. Because each of these respective monarchs also buy into the notion of Malaysian multiculturalism. Yes. So multiculturalism is indelible into the fabric of Malaysian society. Yes. That even if there was to be an authoritarian regime, it would have to play along those lines. Hmm. It would have to accept Malaysian multiculturalism.
0: Yes. Um, So let's move on to uh, the role of Islam in Malaysia. Uh, people say when you meet friends don't talk about religion and politics we're going to do both this time <laughs> so uh, um, so there has been a common observation of Malaysia for a long time that they call it the Islamization of Malaysia the, ins, the institutionalization of kind of Islamic practice and ideas into our governments um, let's let's first try to define what Islamization means to you I guess in a Malaysian context
1: Okay. Islamization basically means to me the encroachment of state-enforced morality into Mm -hmm. a citizen's uh, private lives. Yes. But what Islamism is, in Malaysia at least, is not what the international media sometimes perceives it to be.
0: In what sense?
1: Islamism is less a strict theological movement and mm-hmm. more a right-wing nationalist movement that co-ops Islamic fundamentalism. Yes. Uh, for example, but the only uh, purely Islamic fundamentalist movement in Malaysia is PAS. Mm-hmm. And even they need to go along with the, so the right-wing Malay nationalist agenda. Mm-hmm. They can never separate themselves from that even though it is not strictly Islamic in many things that it does. Yes. Yes. So to combat Islamization, one needs to try to counter the tenets of right-wing Malay nationalism. Yeah. By taking the wind out of the sails of that ship, we could chip away uh, the Islamization in Malaysia by a huge degree. And dare I say, even mention it, Perhaps we could even talk about the imposition of secularism.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, are you going to say something? or I
1: don't know, you continue, yes.
0: Okay, um, a lot of um, pundits for a long time have liked to refer to Malaysia as a, I guess, quote-unquote moderate con- Muslim country. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that's an accurate, do, you, do you think that's an accurate assessment of what Malaysia is and how Islam is practiced here historically?
1: I think historically? Yes. Historically, you can say we are very um, Islamically moderate. Hmm. But in the modern context, I suppose we are moderate only in terms of comparing us to, say, the countries of the Middle East. Yes. There was actually an article by Shadi Hamid I wrote that had a very interesting factoid. It said, Malaysia and Indonesia are such oddities because while the Islam practiced in both those countries is indeed moderate there are more bylaws determining the behavior of individual Muslims in these countries than most Middle Eastern countries. Mm -hmm. So that to me seems like the imposition of the conservative Muslim identity is somewhat of a state-imposed policy. Yes. Yes. If left to our own devices, I don't think Muslims would would, uh, reflect what most would associate Islamism with. In Malaysia
2: mm-hmm
0: so um so why do you think that I mean like it's looking at it historically why do you think that the way we practice Islam is quite different some scholars point to the fact that um, um the Islam that we that we adopted was kind of syncretized with our prior Hindu Buddhist kind of cultural roots yeah um, so I, I also can... like to point out that Islam came to Southeast Asia through trade in the 15th century, through um, Arab and Indian traders. Um, yes, that's true. Um, compared Islam, to say how Islam yeah. came to, say, Iran or Pakistan, the Middle East, which is through um, invaders, Turkey yes. or Arab invaders. So, yes. could you argue that the way we adopted Islam is very kind of like tamed, I guess, the kind of inherently less militarized <laughs> compared to what you know, the other areas of the, of the Muslim world?
1: Yes, Islam came to this area of the world via trade.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, via trade. So when merchants and preachers uh, proselytized Islam in Malaysia, Mm. Malaysia and Indonesia and the wider region, it was more about trying to establish a kind of compromise with the existing Hindu, Buddhist, and animist communities. Mm. And when they converted, it wasn't necessarily a dramatic thing as it would have been when, if invaders came, for example. Yes. It was more of a, if uh, if I converted to Islam, I would be, uh, shall we say, uh, I would be more in line with the benefits that Muslim traders would have to offer, because Muslim traders would more likely trade with their own more. Yes. Yes, so I think that's the reason why we are not as, which I would say strictly ultra-conservative with our Islam than Mm. the Muslims of the Middle East. Yes. The Islam that came here came here through trade. And Mm. just as with trade, its establishment came with a lot of compromise. Mm. There was a lot of syncretism involved.
0: Yes. Mm. I think certainly this this compromise speaks Mm. to the logic kind of pragmatism that, Mm. that... is part of the Malaysian mentality. I remember, um, this, I was reading this tweet, which really struck, stuck with me. It's, um, it was saying how Malaysia will never be liberal enough to please liberals, but will never be conservative enough to please Islamists either. Yeah. And <laughs> I certainly think that Malaysia, the reason why we've been so historically stable, at least compared to other post-colonial countries is because we, I think mentality wise we have this kind of pragmatism about us. We, change is very incremental and slow but it ensures that socially we're, we're more or less stable.
1: Yeah, it's like this uh, cooperation between competing power blocks. Mm. It's like when Islam came here and wanted to establish itself, Yes, That's make a lot of trade-offs with yes. the existing like Hindu-Buddhist policies that already existed. Yes. So in that kind of to and fro, I suppose you could say there there's something innately Malaysian about that culture. Yes. Wherein we just try to strike a compromise and coexist in that compromise. Mm. I think that's actually the story of like, post independent Malaya. Yes.
0: yes. Do you think that this recent general election kind of spells an end to Islamization or at least kind of um, um, oh. presents oh. an alternative direction for where Malaysia is going?
1: Unfortunately, that's going to have to be a flat-out no from me. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, G14 offers the opportunity to mm. challenge Islamization, mm. but as to whether Islamization will end, yeah. uh, no, it won't end in this generation. Mm. I think there could be um, a more powerful opposition to which uh, Islamization could arise, yes. but it will still remain a powerful force to be reckoned with in Malaysian politics for the foreseeable future. But I think the silver lining is Islamization in Malaysia is not the rise of the Taliban, for example. No. No, it is, as I said before, right-wing nationalism. Yes. So to combat Islamism, you have to combat that movement first. Mm. If you can find an effective bulwark against that, you can find an effective bulwark against Islamism.
0: Um. Yeah. What do you think? So let's look at maybe a brief history of Islamization in Malaysia. Like, what do you think caused this kind of turn to more like kind of overt religiosity in Malaysian society? Um,
1: Well, it's mostly regarded as um, a catalyst from the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a very odd thing, seeing as how that Islamic Revolution was very much a Shiite Muslim phenomenon.
0: And, um, you know, For those of you who don't know, Malaysia is a Sunni, um, is it Shafi? We follow the Shafi's? Yes, a Shafi
1: school of thought. Yes, yes. yes. So that was a Shiite Muslim phenomenon. But yet, the idea that there could be a feasible Islamic theocracy struck a chord with Islamist movements Mm. around the world. Yes. So it was from there that the Islamization of Malaysia began. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, again, you could call this not a spiritual awakening, but a nationalist awakening. Mm-hmm. Like mm, the Muslim community around the world felt like they could orient their identity, their respective national identities around this Islamism that Iran had established. Yes. yes I think that's when the Islamization began. It was like a rallying cry for Muslims that we can make our own state. We don't yeah. need that was during the Cold War as well. Hmm. So we have to understand that during the competing forces of westernization and communism, hmm. there was an underlying feeling among the people who would become Islamists, like the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, that we could make our own state yes, independent of these two forces. And I think that's where the Islamization began.
0: Well, I mean, looking at it from eternal politics, um, could you also point to the the kind of competitive politics between PAS and UMNO, for most of the, uh, I guess, from the 70s onwards, there was kind of a competition between both parties to gain Malay votes. Yes. And that, UMNO often, and- that often yes. presented themselves in, in, like, who was more religious, who could present themselves as more pious Muslims, I guess.
1: Yeah, it was a holier-than-thou game that UMNO and PAS had played with each other for a long time. Yes. But, again, while PAS is a force to be reckoned with, it's still just a state party. Hmm. Now, from my perspective, that means that the majority of Malay Muslims, yes. conservative as they are in Malaysia, don't buy into the strict Islamism of PAS, but yes. they, would, they would rather favor the Islamism bandied about by Amno, the Islamism that's encouched in Malay Muslim nationalism., yes. the, the one that says, Malay, Malays are Muslim, and that's how we will always be." Mm. But at the same time, we don't want a caliphate. Yeah, we just want Muslims to be in charge. Like Malay Muslims hegemony is the pillar of Malaysia.
0: Yes, yeah. well, I think uh, Michael Vatkiotis, uh pointed to this. He said how, um, in many ways, is the Islamist movement or the Islamization um, kind of phenomenon that was in part due to kind of this kind of inner Malay anxiety about um kind of being possibly swallowed up by the uh, richer and more affluent Chinese minority um, yes that's,
1: and because the communism or the fear of communism during the Malayan emergency played a huge role in that in that fear as well mm. yes
0: yeah um, yes. although I, I guess I would point out that this this kind of tensions with um, yeah, Chinese with with our Chinese minority. Yeah. This isn't this alien to Malaysia. If you look across Southeast Asia, for example, Thailand, the Philippines, Indonesia, yeah. that's something that's kind of um that, that anxiety has always kind of been across the region, I guess.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, that anxiety has been across the region hmm. and it actually had very bloody consequences in Indonesia. Hmm. For example, during the financial crisis in 1998, if you'll remember, hmm. there were some pogroms
2: yes.
0: in
1: Indonesia that targeted the Chinese community.
0: This is during the kind of larger anti-Suhato protests, as I understand.
1: Yes, that's true. That in Malaysia, even though there was anxiety of uh, Chinese affluence hmm. that would somehow swallow up the Malay majority who was... You know, due to the British imperial system of divide and conquer, made to focus most of their energies simply in the peasant um, agricultural sectors.
2: Mm.
1: Despite that anxiety, the founding fathers of Malaysia never envisioned a Malaysia without the Chinese. Yes. That there was always the idea that there would be a multicultural Malaysia. Yes. That all non-Malays would indeed be granted citizenship.
3: Hmm.
1: it's also worth noting that our founding father uh, tunku abdul rahman he was very ardent in the fact that malaysia was not an islamic state as yeah. was conventionally understood
0: oh yeah i mean um people forget that uh yeah. the founding father in malaysia um you know he drank whiskey he would he would yeah. skip, he would skip cabinet meetings <laughs> to watch the races he was yeah. um
1: it was, it was able to
0: playboy. that kind of English-educated generation of kind of nationalist leaders, which initially controlled Malaysian politics.
1: It was one that was very cozy to the aristocracy, the British aristocracy.
0: Mm, yes. yes. Um, it bears kind of resemblance to, say, um, the first generation of leaders in, say, India or Pakistan who were also English-educated and very much yeah. kind of, I guess, quote-unquote, yeah. westernized in how yeah. they approached yeah. um, politics and stuff like that.
1: I suppose that's also why, in like, mul- most Malay Muslim nationalist uh, rhetoric, mm. our founding father plays no role in it.
2: Mm. Okay.
1: Yes, it when it comes to the um, the assertion of Islam's or Islamism's dominance in Malaysia, you don't you don't see Tunku Abdul Rahman, for example, in their mm. rhetoric at all. Because even they understand that he was not. Um, she would say he would not be a proponent of their movement.
0: Yes,
3: yes,
1: yes. Even though Tun Abdul Rahman himself was a nationalist. Yes, yes.
0: Well, which is interesting because you compare to say um, Indonesian historiography. Um, mm. There's a lot of veneration of Sukarno. Mm. Um, or say I don't know uh, uh, in in Burma the yeah. Ong, Ong San Suu Suki's father. His name escapes me. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems here in Malaysia. Um, we don't really venerate our history as much. Um, at least uh, we present only a very kind of narrow view of our
1: history. Uh, yes, I think after GE fourteen, as a matter of fact, the thing I was looking forward to the most was a broadening of the uh, history syllabus in our schools. Yes, because we have been force-fed a very doctored version of our history. Yes, especially our post and in- uh, our post independence history especially but all about history overall yes something that caters to the rhetoric of umno that this land had always belonged to the malays mm. it kind of always starts out at uh, 1511 malacca when the ah. Portu- when the portuguese invaded mm. that was the uh, the first time uh, malaya had experienced its brush with european colonization yes and from then on, we are told in our schools that um, it's all—it's always been Malay tolerance, Malay tolerance with the encroachment of foreigners—that's mm. kept this country safe and secure. That if uh, if we wanted to, we of course deserve our own country. Yes. So that's kind of the rhetoric they use to maintain the status quo. Mm. Yes, in that in our history, yes.
3: Yes.
0: Um kind of brushing on this idea of um, kind of uh, racial politics in Malaysia, what I find always interesting is that it's often couched as purely the Malays versus the Chinese.
2: Mm. Um,
0: Ignoring the fact that 10% of our population, I think, is Indian, uh, Mm. primarily southern Indians. Mm. Um, What, I mean, what what position do Indians kind of play in Malaysia's politics? Because what I find interesting is that despite being a very small group, Indians are normally the we dominate, say the the legal system, or um, mm-hmm. some of the most vocal activists in Malaysia, are Indians. Yep. Um, I think that probably speaks to, uh, you know, the Indian verbosity. I guess, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, I'm I'm half Indian. You, you know, I'm you're also from, half Indian. Yes. Yeah. So, and anyone who's been to Indian, you know, family gatherings will know Indians never stop talking. You know, we just no. we're very opinionated people.
1: It's a, it's a habit I picked up. Yes. <laughs> yes.
0: Um. So, I mean, what what what. What role India, have Indians played in Malaysia's politics, and, and especially quite recently? Um, because it, quite I feel like we've always been kind of ignored, I guess. Not really ignored, but like it's always between, again, the Malay versus the Chinese. And the Indians are kind of just vicariously living there, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. Historically, that's been the after effect of like, British colonialism. Mm. Like The majority of the southern Indian laborers, they were imported by the British mm. to tap rubber. Yes. And the, uh, shall we say, the population remained small when they were in these rubber plantations. Hmm. And they were a very, shall we say, self-sustained community. They relied on the plantation owners to give them their daily dues. And that was it. They very hardly ventured out of the plantations. Yes. And um, if I remember correctly, a lot of them couldn't even speak Malay.
3: Hmm.
1: So, so when the British left, they found themselves with, without employment They also found the plantations where they had lived their entire lives uh, subjected to development. Yes. So they were were basically put up in low-cost flats,
3: Mm.
1: put up in low-cost flats, and even though there were promises to give them employment and to rejuvenate the community, Mm. that simply did not happen. Yes. So I suppose the bulk of Indian participation in politics, particularly with the Uh, Malaysian Indian Congress the MIC was all about just like towing the establishment line to to ensure that the Indian community got their dues Mm. but recently however uh, the Indian community has found uh, not recently I think even in 2008 the Mm. last general election uh, sorry 2013 the last general election
3: Mm.
1: the MIC lost terribly Yes. And that's because the majority of Indians simply felt they were no longer representing their interests. And in the Medeka Center report, if I recall correctly, we're talking about just now.
0: Yeah.
1: Almost 85% of Indians. Voted,
0: 75% of Indians voted. So sorry, uh, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. 75% of Indians voted for Pakatan Harapan. Yes. So I think it's come to a stage in the community where they realize that towing the party line no longer works mm. and they need to more uh, sorry, They need to more verbosely advocate for their rights. Yes. It's always it's always uh, as I've read it The Indian community's political aspirations have always been tied to another party's uh, another party's rhetoric. Yes, whether it's reformacy or whether it's Barisan National's uh, line about maintaining the status quo. Yes. There's never been a single party that just advocated for them, until recently.
0: Yes. Mm. And how about, say, because another thing that dominates Malaysian politics for a long time has been the East-West divide. Um, So East Malaysia, which is the states of Sarawak and Sabah in Borneo, has always felt very kind of ignored in Malaysian politics, they feel they're kind of given, uh, what's the word, the short, short straw of it. I guess I, I don't know what the term is; <laughs> it escapes me right now. But certainly, um, they're not as developed as West Malaysia. Uh, many East Malaysians I meet have a very strong sense of local identity. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that w- w- are we going to see a more equitable um, kind of balance of power post twenty I- fourteen or?
1: Yeah, I think we will see a much more equitable balance of power because if you'll remember in post-GE14, the component parties that constituted Barisan National in Sarawak yes. broke away from them. Mm. They formed their own Gagasan Party Sarawak. Yes. Sorry, right, who got that wrong. It's Gabungan Pati Sarawak. Okay. okay. So as now... There will be a so-called Borneo block. Mm. Yeah, Borneo block in East Malaysia that advocates for Sabah and Sarawak. Yes. Um, more equitably now. Yes. Because before GE14, Sabah and Sarawak were simply regarded as fixed deposits. Yes. They were simply regarded as fixed deposits for Barisan National to ensure a victory, which they would then use to simply concentrate on Peninsula, the agenda on the Peninsula. Yes and just forgetting all about Sabah and Sarawak. Hmm. Now, recently, however, Mahathir agreed to, he agreed that the ratification of article, Mahathir stated that it would be on Harapan's agenda yes. to wait, to accept Sabah and uh, article, I'm sorry, not sure which, the Malaysia Agreement
3: 1963.
1: Okay. Okay. Now,
3: under this agreement,
1: Sabah and Sarawak, and Sarawak along with Singapore, mm-hmm. was supposed to be inducted into our federation. Yes. However, in 1976, downgrade Sabah and Sarawak as the 12th and 13th state of Malaysia instead of equal partners. Mm-hmm. So, Mahatma, just to rectify that. Now, this, coupled with the formation of parties like uh, Gabungan Parti Sarawak, Yes. Okay. Now, with Mahathir pledging to ratify Malaysia Agreement 1963 mm-hmm. and the formation of the uh, parties like Gabungan Pati Sarawak. Yes. I think we're going to see a much more equitable relationship between the peninsula and East Malaysia. Mm. And this is especially important because I'm not sure if this was the result of Barasa National's policies. um Perhaps it was. Um, We in the peninsula don't have as much kinship, kinship with our fellow Malaysians across the river as we do with ourselves in the peninsula.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, We tend to see Sabah and Sarawak as only technically part of Malaysia. For example, it's very common for a lot of my Sabahan friends when they come to Malaysia and they get into an Uber and the Uber driver strikes up a conversation and asks them, uh... Dari mana ini? Yeah, and he would say from Dari Sabah, yeah. and the driver would say, "Oh, is this your first time in Malaysia?"
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. So that's, I think, how most of us see Sabah and Sarawak.
0: Yeah, I remember um, a Sabahan friend of mine said, "Um, sort of the state radio in Sabah, yep. Yep. would always every morning they would they would open with yep. um, good morning to Malaysia and Sabah and Sarawak.'" <laughs> <laughs> you know, <it's>
1: like, <laughs> and, and I think it's something that's fueled uh, yeah. certain separatist sentiments in Sabah and Sarawak. Mm. I mean, they're just fed up with being neglected by the federal budget for having all these false promises of national development and then just having it be forgotten. Yes. Yeah. So I think now we can see ourselves, post GE14, mm. we could see ourselves in a new paradigm. Yes. Yes. Especially because now with Gabungan Party Sarawa mm-hmm. and with BN being nothing but a vestige of its former self, mm. Bornean politics does take greater priority now in Parliament.
0: I think certainly it, they can't they yeah. can't treat it as just you know, votes are granted, right? Like some voting bank. They Yeah. They're yeah. Are no
1: they're not they're not only no longer a voting bank, but they have more seats than BN does in Parliament now. Mm. Yes. Uh, yeah. BN only has two states, Burlis and Pahang. Yeah. So they are not really in any position right now to say um, impede uh, Sabah and Sarawak's uh, political advocacy in the peninsula.
3: Yes.
0: Then, hmm. yes. um, speaking of BN, um, what do you see the future of BN to be? Because some people have argued that, um. BN might decide to simply, well, I guess specifically UMNO, UMNO yep. might decide to, to, just to double down and become this increasingly far-right Islamist party which only promotes Malay supremacy. Um, however, we've seen certain figures in, in, the, Umno gov- in the UMNO party, um, I think Jalaluddin Jal- yes, yes. argued that we have to learn from this and become a more liberal, well, not, maybe not necessarily liberal, but more cosmopolitan um, party.
1: I think the, there was an interview with, uh, with him on BFM in which he, he stated that he wanted Amno to turn into the Amno of Tunku Abdul Rahman, the mm. centrist party. Mm. Yeah. If there was ever a spirit of centrist nationalism, I think that's what he perceives Tunku Abdul Rahman to have represented. Yes. But regarding Amno, the one word I can say right now to describe Amno is rudderless. Yes. Brother, they have no idea what they want to do right now. Hmm. They don't even know if they should go all in and become a party that completely advocates for Malay Muslim supremacy without the notion of even like uh, conceding to the fact that multiculturalism would require them to compromise here and there. Yes. Now, it's worth noting that BN still includes the MCA.
3: Yes, the, Malay the Malay Chinese, Chinese Association.
1: Association. Mm. But the fact that they're still there is still a mystery. Mm. Because at this point, UMNO is such a feeble shadow of what it was.
3: Mm.
1: Even PAS isn't totally on board with absorbing them into a yes. unity government. Yes. Yeah, forming a sort of pact with them. As a matter of fact, there was a recent, I think some months back... Uh, a recent uh conference mm. with uh I think it was the Amno General Assembly, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Where pass uh past leaders were present in the AMNO General Assembly. Mm. And there was talk of Amno joining with PAS yes. because uh Amno was the weaker party. Yes. And they were very blatant about that. Amno that should join PAS because it's the weaker party right now. <laughs> mm. uh, that didn't sit well with Amno uh, youth members. For example, yeah. uh, Sharil Hamdan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very much opposed to that. Yes. And not least because, again, the kind of Islamism that PAS advocates is, though similar, still a far cry from the vision of what Malaysia should be and what role Islam plays in it that Uh, AMNO advocates. Yes. Yeah, so at the moment, even though it's the predictable thing to say that AMNO may just go for broke and be the most extreme version of itself, Mm. I don't think that's where they're going to go either because I don't think they know where they want to go.
0: No, I think certainly, you know, I mean, look at at it from their perspective. After 61 years in power, like... I'm I'm I feel like they're still kind of trying to absorb the shock, you know, that, yeah. just, that they don't know what to do as an opposition party mm-hmm. now. Yeah. And that, that actually people are pointing this out, like this this is another danger to democracy in Malaysia yeah. is that we don't yeah. have an effective opposition anymore.
1: Yes, yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. I think uh, after sixty-one years being finally ousted from power, they had, uh, after GE fourteen they also had their party elections. Yes. Now they elected Zahid Hamidi.
0: Yeah, who I want to yeah. point out, he's currently yeah. facing 45 charges, I think. Of yes, yes. Corruption <laughs> yeah. and abuse of, I think that's like, uh, if I read somewhere, that's yeah, like a uh, record in Malaysian like, judicial yeah. history or something like that.
1: It is indeed a record. But they elected him as their president. Yes. And I think by doing so, they really demonstrated how much they didn't know what to do next in this post-GE14 landscape. Mm. They didn't know if they should give the reins to someone like Kari Jamaluddin because in UMNO, there's a very patriarchal pecking order. It's the kind of like father-knows-best sort of political dynamic. You yeah, listen, I think yeah,
0: the, the, yeah. people are pointing out about Malaysian political culture. Yeah. It's a big, yeah. yes, wow. a big emphasis on seniority.
1: Yes, a big emphasis on seniority. So rather than throw in their lot with someone like Kairi, who, mm. by the way, in my opinion, is not even someone visionary. He's just the milder of, uh, the milder side of Amno. Yes. They decided to go with Zahid. Mm. And I think that pretty much speaks to where they are right now. They were yeah. trying to hold on to the familiar, hoping that somehow what the experience they've accumulated from those 61 years can guide them through this storm. Yes. But I think it's too late for that. Mm. I think the G14 was a rejection of the old order yes so if we're trying to maintain a facade of that old order it's just not gonna end well
0: Mm. so um let's kind of move slightly back to um, the role of Islam in Malaysia because uh, you've mentioned that um you know the UMNO and PASA still could possibly just bunker down and just Promote a more hardline vision of Islam.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, this has been kind of a discussion in not just in Malaysia but in, in kind of a larger world, um, especially post nine eleven, which mm-hmm. is the kind of relationship between Islam and modernity. So there's been critics in say the West, like say uh, I don't know, like top of my head, it's like Sam Harris or someone who's, mm-hmm. who think that Islam and modernity are inherently incompatible. Do you think Malaysia challenges that view or like what what do you think? um, uh, I
1: think think Islam, like every other religion, is not incompatible with modernity. Mm. Modernity denotes the fact that somehow there is something special about our 21st century landscape that makes it different from all the other social and political circumstances that preceded us. Yes. Now, I don't necessarily think that's true. Because I don't think everyone is one hundred percent a believer mm. in 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 any given religion. Yes. So I think the overwhelming majority of a religion's inherent uh, adherence mm. will live their lives not as strict theologians, but in a kind of shall we say uh, compromising worldview. Yes. Yeah. You you do the best with what you can get. Yes. But as a political system, however, I would agree that Islamism does have a hard time coping with uh, 21st century modernity, especially when it comes to the ratification of universal human rights.
2: Mm.
1: Yes. There's always this... um, uh, I think you've heard of the Cairo Declaration of Human Rights? Yes. Yes. It was basically this alternative interpretation of human rights that... Mm. um, out of deference to orthodox Islamic uh, tenets, yes, They basically did not recognize um, mostly uh, respect for the LGBTQ community. Yes, yes, yes. Now I think, yeah, I think that is incompatible with modernity. Mm. Uh, Islamism is, but yes. Islam as a religion, well, no, I don't think it's incompatible at all. Yes, or rather, you are Muslims incompatible with modernity. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. I don't think Muslims are incompatible with modernity. Islamism is, yeah.
0: I always um, remember a quote by um, the, uh, I think, American-Iranian scholar Reza Aslan, and he was Hmm. saying how if you want to see real change in the Muslim world, Hmm. In, in, in terms of how, we, how Muslims yeah. approach your practice of yes. your faith. Mm-hmm. You can't look at the Middle East. You have to look at countries like, say, non-Arab countries like Iran, yeah. Indonesia, yeah. Malaysia. I yeah. certainly think in the case of Malaysia, you know, again, going back to the fact that yeah. we have a relatively empowered civil society. Yeah. And we do, have liberal, we, we do have liberal Malay groups, like, uh, yes. say, Sisters, Sisters in Islam or yes. you mentioned ideas, um, Institute yeah. of and Economic Affairs. You know, yeah. we do have people here in Malaysia pushing for more liberal interpretation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. And i uh, also like to bring up something. There's this There's this discussion that's been going on where people say Islam needs a reformation. Mm. And there are others who come to that by saying, no, Islam's religion is perfect. Muslims need a reformation. Yes. Now, to that, I would just say this. There is no difference. That mm-hmm. the Quran does not speak for itself, the Hadith do not speak for itself, the interpreters speak for the religious texts. Mm. So when Muslims undergo reforms, Islam yeah. will inevitably follow.
2: Mm.
1: Like, for example, it's uh, it's it's not difficult to say that Christianity is very much a force to be reckoned with in American politics, yes. though not not to the degree that Islamism is in Malaysia. Yes, however. Those, shall we say, Republican proponents of Christianity, how many of them are really strict adherents of the Bible?
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's something worth thinking about there. Yeah. A lot of them are not. A lot of them have their very evangelical interpretation of Christianity, but they kind of just work with what they have, they leave out the rest.
0: Yes,
3: yes.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah, I think that's certainly yeah. the case here in Malaysia. Like, um, People often point out the hypocrisies of the fact that we have, you know, for a long time, we have the elites, the Malay elites on top who who present this image of like, oh, yeah. very pious Muslims. So we, yeah. we, we want to live in a very yeah. Islamist society. It's yeah. Yeah, a very religious yeah. society. Yeah. yeah. But then you look at most yeah. fairly wealthy middle class Malays. They live yeah. very secular lifestyles, right? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. so many Malays drink, so many yeah. Malays do, yeah. yeah. quote unquote, haram things, I guess. Yeah. I mean... There's a there's a disconnect between what they the the image they want to present to society versus the kind of diverse their private lives.
1: Yes, that's very true. And again, it's more about I mean their adherence to Islamism is Mm. more like an adherence to a political ideology. Like yes, they know what they're supposed to do, Mm. but they also indulge in certain haram activities. But they. Compensate for that by saying, hey, as long as I'm an Islamist, I'm sure I could do all those things. And yes. being an Islamist is my redemption. Yes. Now, yes. that there's also an urban-rural divide here because that's mostly, uh, in my experience at least, that's mostly how the urban thinking goes. Yes. Yes, like among affluent Malay Muslim elites, mm. they believe they can get away With indulging in certain sins that their affluence brings with it Yes By being an Islamist Now, in the rural areas, on the other hand um, Being an Islamist is indeed associated with being a pious Muslim Yes However, paradoxically, because I also have family in the rural areas Mm. uh, A pious rural Muslim isn't really taken too much with race politics Mm, Okay. Yes, uh, uh, just to give you an example, there's a journalist, uh, Ahmed El Dean, for AJ+. Mm. Yes. He recently went to uh, Tennessee to survey Trump voters. Mm. Now, the majority of people he met were really all-American white Christians. Yes. Now, they faithfully went to church. Mm. Now, at the same time, None of them were taken by Trump's uh, rhetoric of fear-mongering. Yes. But they were, however, uh, they did, however, buy into the idea that he was selling that their existence was under threat.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Yeah, that that somehow, if they didn't vote for him, their very livelihoods would be at stake. Mm Mm-hmm. But at the same time, Ahmed el-Din is the very portrait of the man whom Trump is fear-mongering about. Yeah. He is a young Muslim male, and he is very evidently Arab. Yes. Yeah, But at the same time, that didn't really hamper his uh, so his interactions with people. Yeah. It's kind of a paradox, yes. It doesn't make sense from an objective rhetorical standpoint, but yeah. it is true. Yes.
0: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, going back to what you said, this, yeah. um, this kind of symbiotic relationship between Islam and kind of Malay yeah. nationalism in Malaysia. Yeah. Um, because, you know, again, in proper Islamic, yeah. in in Islamic worldview, there's no place for nationalism. No. You know, it's, t- it's, it's a very alien concept. To, I think very traditional Muslims, I guess.
1: Yeah. Uh, Salafi Muslims, for example, uh, strict as they are, technically reject monarchy and they reject nationalism because technically you're only supposed to be faithful to God. Yes. So nationalism comes in second, especially if it, if it violates that proponent. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because, um, this, this relationship in Malaysia, it's, um, I, I always wonder, like, where does say non Malay Muslims fit into this? Like, um, you see a lot of fear-mongering among traditional Malays, right, against, like, Bangladeshi migrants or mm-hmm. uh, refugees. Most of whom are, like, maybe Rohingya refugees. Yeah. So it's like, they're yeah, Muslims, but they're not Malays. You know what I mean? Like, they're still, they're kind of <laughs> this weird gray zone.
1: Yeah, it's kind of, it's very analogous to, shall I say, conserv- Malay nationalist support for the Palestinians.
2: Mm.
3: Yeah,
1: It's very convenient, of course, and I do support the Palestinian cause, but it's a far-off conflict. Yes. Yeah, it's far-off conflict in which we don't feel the repercussions. Now, yeah. the Rohingya crisis, for example, we do very much feel the ramifications because Rohingya refugees come to Malaysia. Yes. Now, when they come to Malaysia, suddenly all those notions of Islamic solidarity bandied about by Malay nationalists just evaporates. It eva- it evaporates against the anxiety of having to share employment opportunities with Rohingya refugees. It it's um, it it goes up against the anxiety of seeing more foreigners in what's supposedly a Malay ruled land. Yeah, yeah. It's it's those realities that really just take a sledgehammer to the idea of Islamic solidarity. It shows that Malay nationalism is very much. Ethnocentric, despite yeah. its it, despite the premium it places on Islam.
3: Yes, yes. Mm.
0: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think we've more or less covered what we wanted yeah. to talk about with Malaysia. Um, yes. Yeah. I guess uh, my final question to you before we wrap this up is: um, yeah. What are your hopes and aspirations for Malaysia post g 14 Like, what do you want? To, where do you want to see Malaysia go, direction-wise?
1: Okay, it is my most heartfelt wish. A uh, wish that Malaysia baru not just be a slogan, Mm. but rather for it to be a principle for us to continually hold our leaders accountable to.
3: Yes.
2: Yeah.
1: I, even though I know the fight ahead will definitely endure through more than a few elections. Mm -hmm. I hope we establish a course that we can see, uh, that we can see going forwards leading to the, Um, eradication of this feudal political culture
2: Mm. uh,
1: leading forward towards the end of race-based politics.
3: Yes, And
1: finally, the embrace of liberal and progressive politics not as a gateway sin that leads to anarchy but as principles by which our nation can and should live by. Yes. Yes. That's what I hope for.
0: I think certainly... Um Malaysia going forward, I can I can imagine there's going to be a lot of disappointments. There's going to be a lot yes, of frustrations. Yeah. But one thing we can say, it will be interesting to watch. Um, yes,
1: definitely. Yes, um, it are definitely more exciting in this field than Singapore.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah
1: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just had to get that in.
0: Yeah, it's okay. It's, <laughs> we, we can't call ourselves proper yeah. Malaysians if we don't finish with a snide remark to Singapore. So it's uh, true. It's <laughs> very true. <laughs> Yeah. Well um yeah I think that's the end of our episode for today. Thank you for joining me. That's very kind of you. Thank you uh, for having me Imran. Right. Yeah. All right. Well uh have a have a good day folks.